All right, good evening, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome back to our final study in 1 John. Uh, so let's begin in a word of prayer, and we'll finish this uh, final chapter up in this awesome book, and uh, we'll go from there. Let's pray together. God, uh, thank you for the night that we're in, Lord, and we've all uh, been busy about um, the work that you've given us to do, and we pray that we do all to your glory. And Lord, we'd like to finish tonight in your word, Lord, as we finish this book written by your apostle. And Lord, we know there's so much to know, and we know there's so much to learn, and maybe some of that learning will come years from now. But what you have for us tonight, we pray that we would receive and enjoy because it's from you. And Lord, in your word is life. So we pray that we would experience that. So may you get all the honor and the glory for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, so we're in the fifth and final chapter of First John, and just in just a few words, just so we kind of get the um, meta narrative of First John going here. Uh, chapter one, we dealt with the. Keep going. Chapter one, we dealt with um, the fact that John was emphatic that Jesus is real. He said, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. He was manifested to us. So it was no longer this philosophy of God that he's out there somewhere and we just have to believe the prophets. Know that we are able to behold him ourselves. And uh, John's emphatic about that in chapter one. Chapter two, there's a couple different things going on, but I sum it up this way. He says, because of the reality of the revelation of God, the question is, do you know him? Okay, so if he's unknown to you, it's not because he hasn't made himself known to you. There's something about you. It, it, that's why you don't know him. So do you know him is the question of two. Chapter three talks about uh, our love for God and his love for us. And because of that mutual love, there's gonna be a spillover into love for one another. And if there's not love for one another, then there's a disconnect either in our love for God, it wouldn't be in God's love for us because that's immutable, but our love for him can change. So um, the proper relationship of love to God and God's love to us actually results in love to others. So that would be chapter three. Last week, chapter four, um, several different thoughts going back and forth. The main one that I would press home to you is that this love helps us discern truth from error. So the Bible is unique in that it's not necessarily um, dependent upon your IQ for understanding. There's a relationship with God that opens up the eyes of your understanding. If you need any more evidence, it's not about IQ. Just look who's teaching you, man. Okay? All right. Now, chapter 5, um, again, a couple different thoughts going on there. And... I've titled tonight's message, The Privileges of Membership. And that's because uh, John Dwyer, who does a lot of our technical work, he works for American Express, and that's one of their old sayings, or current sayings, actually. And um, yet, I think it applies more to we who are the people of God than it does to those who own an American Express card. So <clears throat> let's take a look at what I mean. All right, chapter five. So. Now, chapter five starts kind of in the middle of a thought, and the thought being that faith brings about obedience. 
The more you believe, the more you obey. If your faith is kind of weak, then you kind of are back and forth in your obedience. The stronger your faith is, the more you obey, to the point where Jesus will say, hey, if you love me, then you'll obey my commandments. Okay, so love and obedience are, are go hand in hand. Now, uh, picking up on that thought in chapter five, it says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him, also, well, I'm sorry. Everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Okay, now John, it probably sounds better in Greek than it does in English. So let's look at what he's really trying to say here. It says, um, it, it's, it's saying that, um, I'm sorry, verse one. It's saying, if we love God, we'll keep his commandments for two reasons. Love compels us, love compels us to please the one that we love. We know that in our own relationships, and it's now true in this relationship we have with God. If we love God, we'll keep his commandments because this love compels us to please the one whom we love. Secondly, uh, we know from Philippians 2 that uh, the promise of verse 12 and 13 in Philippians 2 is that when we love God and God loves us, he's going to work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. So in other words, why are we going to be, we can count on being obedient to him? Because God gives us a want to. He gives us a desire. And a lot of you are familiar with Psalm 37.4. Psalm 37.4 is an often memorized verse which says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, do you know most people, most people think, okay, I'm going to be praying for a Mercedes then. I'm going to delight in God and then get a Mercedes. Okay. Well, that's getting the object of your desire. This doesn't say he'll give you the objects of your desires. It said he'll give you the actual desire. So he works in you to will. He'll actually give you desires. So that way when you actually desire something, he's happy to give you that desire because he's the one that put that desire for that thing in you. Okay, that way you know you're in conformity to God's will. This chapter will actually end with that same thought. So uh, we'll flesh that out at the very end as well. All right, so now... The confusing part of this verse is in the wording. So it says, everyone who loves him who begot, so that's God who did the begotting, the begetting, also loves him who is begotten of him. So to love him is to love those whom he has begotten. Why? Because those who he has begotten are so one with him that to love him is to love them and to love them is to love him. That's the oneness that, that we're, the Bible's giving us here. We can't separate the fact that if we love God, we love those who he has begotten, okay? It's very hard to love somebody and then despise their kids, okay? Because they begot those kids, your love for them will carry over to the love of the children almost automatically. You'll rejoice in their birth. You can't wait to see them. You're a part of their upbringing and so forth. Why? You never met those kids are not related to you, but if you love those who begotten them, then you're gonna love those whom they begotten. Did I say that right? If you love them, you'll love those that they begat. All right, let's get off of the word begotten and begat because it's messing with my mind. All right, so verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and keep his commandments. So that's a repeated theme in here. I've already covered it already tonight. We've covered it in previous weeks. Obedience, two things about obedience. It's a sign of your love for God and it's the avenue of blessing, okay? As parents, you never bless the disobedience of your children, do you? When they act disobediently, you don't reward them for that. Where do we get that from? Well, we got that from our perfect heavenly father. He does not reward our disobedience, but he will reward our obedience. So the heart of good parents that way is a reflection of the heart of our perfect father that way. All right. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome our, the world, our faith. Okay, the means of our victory over the world is our faith. What does that mean? Well, what are the victories that it's talking about? Well, ultimately, it's talking about the victory over the devil. Okay, the victory over the devil, your faith will give you victory over sin and death that the devil introduced through the garden, through our first parents, Adam and Eve, and uh, it'll give us victory there. But our faith also gives us victory because in every, in, in every event that goes on in the world, when the unsaved are just operating in, this, in the world, when they're the majority, we're the minority, you're going to see that in this chapter, it's going to talk about that they have the spirit of wickedness in them. It's a spirit of wickedness. There's a spirit that makes them selfish and greedy and, and self-centered. There's a spirit that makes them um, uninterested in the overall well-being of humanity. I mean, uh, it's nearly impossible to start a company, make it like um, a multi-billion dollar company without greed setting in. I mean, it's just a spirit of wickedness. You, you, your natural inclination is not to say, now who can I feed and who can I house and all this. Your natural inclination is to say, how can I take all this money and make more? How can I keep adding to my wealth? Now there's supernatural inclinations that would say, I wanna take my money and I wanna give it away and I wanna do other things with it. But that does not come from human nature. That would only come from um, a, a part of the divine spark that's within us. So it's our faith that overcomes the world. Faith is a substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen, okay? So it's your ability to be somebody who says, I believe, and because I believe, I can now see the way God sees. I can consider and value things the way God does. What does the wickedness of the world tell us? You don't see and then believe, be, you don't believe and then see, you have to see and then believe. Okay, so, so that's the scientific world. And that's why they get the science all wrong. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, take my apologetics class whenever that comes up again. All right, so our faith brings us our victory. Now, our faith goes like a roller coaster, doesn't it? Some days we're totally convinced and on fire and preaching Jesus and all this. Other days we wake up and we go, wait, what do I believe? Do I really, is this real? Do I really believe there's a heaven and a hell and a God and all these things? Listen, we all ebb and flow in those directions. We all ebb and flow in those directions. But what is John really trying to tell us in this book? He's trying to say, listen, I understand the ebb and the flow of faith, but 
because your obedience is dependent upon your faith and because your love for God is dependent upon your faith, so much depends upon your faith, he wants you to know this. I saw God. I walked with him. I talked with him. I touched him. Um, I saw him executed by the government. And then I saw him on the third day risen from the dead. I saw it. Okay? So um, let that... Let that be the, the secondary reason why your faith is strong. And the primary reason we're going to bring up at the end of this chapter, which is going to be that inner witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Okay, you have been granted this, the Holy Spirit in your heart. And now listen, unless you're recently saved, you may have forgotten about what it felt like when you didn't have that inner witness. When you heard the Bible and it was just like, how could you possibly love a book like that so much? How could people love that book like they do? How could they study it every day? How could they sign up for classes? Why would they spend 70 bucks on something like that? Um, then when you got saved, you're seeking out Wednesday night classes for heaven's sake. Have you nothing better to do with your lives than to be staring at your laptop right now? Okay. But listen, there's something in you that tells you there's nowhere better to be. You're in the word of God. Now listen, don't discount that inner witness of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, if you like watching debates between Christians and atheists, check out William Lane Craig because he has got an incredible mind. And when he debates these atheists, he'll give us his last point as proof of the existence of God. He'll say it's the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that just makes the atheist stand up and go, what are you talking about? I don't have access to whatever that evidence is that you're saying. That's not credible evidence because we can't see it. We can't hear it. We can't touch it. It's not science. What are you talking about? Inner witness, Holy Spirit. And he'll get up and say, that's what I'm talking about. Because there are millions of people who know exactly what I'm talking about. And you don't. And that's exactly what our Bible said would happen. So you just saying that you don't know what I'm talking about actually defends the truth of the Bible. Because the Bible said that this would play out exactly like it just did. So thank you very much for making my point for me. Now, verse 5, he who, over, he, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Listen, in Acts chapter 8, wonderful story of the Ethiopian eunuch. I just taught it um, Monday and Tuesday to my students because February starts Black History Month. The Ethiopian eunuch is a black man who is the very first convert to Christianity outside the land of Judea. And his story is a wonderful, wonderful story of God going out of his way to reach one person. And he goes out of his way to reach this eunuch. And, and when he finally gets it, Philip the evangelist is with him and he's talking to him. When he finally gets it, he sees water and he wants to be baptized. And he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip had a simple answer. He says, if you believe with all your heart, you can. And here's the eunuch's answer. 10 words, I want you to hear these 10 words that the eunuch says. These 10 words are like having keys. And, and these 10 words serve like a key in a lock that opens up a door. And the other side of that door is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, but you gotta have the key. And the key in my opinion right now, is these 10 words. When, when he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you can. And, and this, the eunuch says this, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. 
That's what I believe. And guess what? The whole kingdom of heaven opened up to him with that statement. And he went on to start the Coptic church that you hear so much on the news, especially when ISIS was very active. They were chopping off Coptic Christians' heads all the times on the beach. But the Coptic church in Northern Africa and Southern Egypt has withstood Islam where no other Christian church has. And if you read the section of Isaiah that the eunuch was reading, you'll see the promises that go to the eunuch that he'll be given a name that'll never be cut off. And that name is, is the name of the Coptic church that has withstood Islam for all these centuries, right in the midst of Islam. It stands as a Christian light shining uh, all the time. So the, uh, um, our faith is our victory. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. It's believing that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And what does this say? Who overcomes the world? It's each and every one of you that says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when you say, I believe, it means you believe in such a way that your decisions become based on that confession. Your lifestyle becomes based on that confession. There's no hypocrisy between your confession and um, your uh, actions. Your confession and your actions are in harmony, and therefore, uh, that's proof that you're the light of the world. All right, verse 6. Now we get into the ones that are verses that are still being debated today, back and forth, back and forth. So I'm going to give you my honest to goodness, best understanding of these scriptures, and, um, and we'll go from there. So verse 6 says this. This is he, capital H, Jesus. He just said, Jesus, Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is true. Now, what is he talking about here? First of all, well, let me read through eight here. It says, but the Spirit is truth. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. So there's your trinity. And these three are one. There's your doctrine of the Trinity. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, the very beginning of verse 7 says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. No, I think it just ends that in heaven. From that point on, through all the rest of verse 8, most ancient manuscripts do not contain the rest of that verse 7 and all of verse 8. This is in a minority of the manuscripts, so we don't know for sure if it's authentic or not, okay? Now, if it's not authentic, then what happened was somebody along the, the way of, of these copies added that to add clarity to something that's naturally very confusing. It's a confusing verse, and they're trying to add clarity to it. If it is authentic, then... Um, Here's what I here's what the best I can make make of this. He's saying he's talking about witness. He's trying to convince us that this is true and it's testified of. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. Well, let's explain that. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. So that gets added. It's a Trinity. They bear witness in heaven. But we're not in heaven, are we? So it's so it, it may be that somebody added, hey, there's those that witness on earth as well. And who are they? The spirit, the water, and the blood. And why are they bringing that up? Because it is authentic, what we read in verse 6, that Jesus came by water and blood, and they're trying to explain that. Um, so what can we make of this, that he came by not just by water, but by water and blood? 
Some scholars, and there's not a lot of them that say, this is just natural birth. Uh, there's blood and water involved with natural birth. So that God actually became a man. It's a way of saying that he came as a man. Others, in a little more popular way, and what I did is where you see the notes there with 1 John 5, 6, I copy and pasted uh, a sermon from Chuck Smith as he kind of tries to explain these verses. Okay? Now, um, many more scholars believe this is referring to what came out of Jesus' side when he got pierced with the, 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 the uh, Roman spear. Said that blood and water came out, and John seems to make a big deal about this blood and this water coming out of him. Because right after in John's gospel, he says, blood and water came out of him. And he says, and I was there and I testified that this is true. So it seems to be a big deal to his contemporaries that blood and water came out of the side of Jesus Christ. And he's trying to say, I saw it and I'm testifying now that it's very true. And what he's probably trying to overcome is this thing called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is a theory that Jesus never died on the cross. He just passed out from loss of blood and that he, he resuscitated in the tomb, but just out of being unconscious, not out of being dead. These are people that deny the supernatural. These are very liberal scholars. And so John seems to be fighting against that idea, and he's saying, no, listen, blood and water came out of him, meaning that heart failed. The, the, the water's a sign of a failed organ, okay? The water kind of surrounds the failed organ and then the blood and the water came out showing that he was indeed dead not of typical reasons that crucified people die which is asphyxiation they suffocate on the cross but he would have died from heart failure which is pretty poetic when you think of what he's doing up there that he died of a broken heart on the cross now so john seems to say that he came not just by water whether that just be baptism now, because some think it's just talking about he was baptized, just like a lot of people are baptized, but he's saying no, he came by water, and the purpose of that water was to get to the blood, that the blood is what it's all about, so he came by water, and he also came by blood. And um, now, he, again, he's probably confronting his... Uh, what are probably the largest group of enemies that the apostles came across in their writings, which were the Gnostics. Now, one of the Gnostic beliefs that John might be overcoming through this passage is that God exists and, and he's spirit, and therefore he would never put on flesh because flesh is evil. Anything material is evil. The material world is evil. Anything that's not spirit of the spiritual world is evil. And they believe that God had these emanations. So that the emanations that were closest to God were the most holy and therefore uh, the most spiritual and non-material. But as the emanations got farther and farther from God, eventually one of those very distant emanations of God became the material universe actually materialized and became our universe. Therefore, the universe is bad and it's evil. And we that come out of this universe with flesh and blood are evil. And so John might be saying to the Gnostics who would not believe that Jesus was flesh and blood, real human, um, 
He's saying to them, no, he came by water and by blood. Um, He shed blood. Um, He was born of water and he shed blood. He's very, very human as well as being very, very God. Okay, so it appears that one of those things is true. And I tend to think because we see Paul battle the Gnostics, we see John battle the Gnostics, that it's likely he has the Gnostics in mind when he emphasizes the water and the blood. All right, verse nine. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Okay, now one or two quick things there. He's not saying we don't have the witness of man, so therefore we, but we do have the witness of God. He's saying it's a both and situation. We have the witness of man and we have the witness of God. One of the great witnesses of man that John would know is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was prophesied about in the Old Testament and um, came to point to Jesus. Remember, John, you can't picture John the Baptist out in the wilderness by himself uh, just baptizing a few people that come by the Jordan River. John had many, 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 many disciples, many, many disciples, okay, who end up most of them transferring over to Jesus because John is pointing to Jesus, okay? So he had the witness of man. Now, we also have the witness of God. The most significant witness of God to Jesus Christ is at his baptism, because many people at his baptism heard the voice of God say, this is my son whom I love, okay? And that voice was heard by many people, and and in John chapter five, that's actually mentioned by Jesus as one of the four witnesses of his reality. Now, since we're talking about witnesses, what every judge in in every court wants to be able to make a decision on something, right, are witnesses. Well, now the Bible is emphasizing the fact that this is testimony that comes by witnesses. We have witness testimony to to what we believe. And in John chapter 5, starting in verse 31, listen to the words of Jesus. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Why? Because the book of Deuteronomy says all matters are established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay. So Jesus saying, I'll hold myself to that Deuteronomic standard. I need two or three. He says, but there is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, who's that? Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Okay, so there's John the Baptist as a witness. And he says, yet I do not, um, but I say these things that you may be saved. He says, I don't receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. I'm telling you, John was a witness because so many thousands of you followed him. And remember, those of you that followed him that questioned me, he only came to point to me. So to follow him is to follow me now. So there's one, verse 35. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than, than John's. So what does John say in 1 John that we just read? We have the witness of man, but we have a greater witness, right? So now Jesus is saying, here's not just a greater witness, but here's a few greater witnesses than John. He says, for the work which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father sent me. So John the Baptist, he puts up as a witness, and the works that he does, he says, witnesses to who I am. 
Now, how do his works witness to who he is? He's talking about miracles now. Miracles authenticate the messenger, that the messenger is from God. If a messenger is not from God, he's going to have a hard time doing miracles, isn't he? Okay, so the miracles authenticate the messenger. Now, Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus at night for fear of the Sanhedrin. And the very first thing out of Nicodemus's mouth is this. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're from God. Now, how do they know that? Because listen, if he's from God, then we can forget every other world religion. We can end atheism. Everybody just needs to know what the heck Nicodemus is talking about. If Nicodemus is right about what he's saying, then it's Christianity through and through, and there should be no more debates. He says, we know you're from God because, what's the because? Because of all of the miracles you've been doing. So Nicodemus says, the miracles that you're doing testify to who you are. Here, Jesus says this, if you don't believe John, I have a greater witness than John, and it's the works that I'm doing. Jesus says this, look at the works that I've done, and you try to explain how I could do those if I'm not from God. You try to explain how the lame man's walking, the blind man's seeing, the deaf are hearing, and, and the dead are raised. Okay, you explain that apart from my claim to be God. But there's more. Verse 37, after he says John the Baptist, after he says his works, he says, and the Father himself. Now, very hard to argue with that. Okay, so, so nobody's going to say, well, I don't believe the Father. So the question is, how does the Father uh, testify of him? Verse 37 says, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding you because whom he sent him you don't believe. So those that, those that uh, have the Father's witness hear him, and he's saying, but you haven't heard him because you don't have his word abiding in you. So how important is this word? Not that you just hear it and try to intellectually learn. It's Jesus here is saying the secret to this word is that it abides in you. Isn't it the claim of Hebrews that this book that you have opened in front of you now is alive and it's active and it pierces right to bone and marrow? Okay, it doesn't say that about war and peace, does it? Doesn't say that about To Kill a Mockingbird, does it? It's this book, okay? Listen, people pray for world peace. All you gotta do is get them to read and believe the Bible, okay? It's hard to kill your fellow man when this is abiding in you, okay? People think this is way too simplistic a worldview, but I can't get off of it, and I don't think you can either. If this is abiding in people, everything we're frustrated about goes away, okay? So it starts with us, and we get the word out. So he says it's the Father himself, and then my favorite, verse 39, the fourth witness he gives, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's these that speak of me. Now, do you have any idea how shocking that was for Jesus to say? Because they showed up to synagogue every Saturday, didn't they? To learn their scriptures. The rabbis and the Pharisees, they're teaching the people these scriptures. They're teaching from Genesis to Malachi at least once a week, probably much more than that. 
and they're learning about the patriarchs, they're learning about the prophets, they're learning all these things. And now this guy, Jesus Christ, shows up and he says this, all you ever did was study me. That's all you've ever did. You're just learning about me. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all the way back to when Moses started writing, all you ever did was learn about me through those Old Testament scriptures. He says, they bear witness of me. So what are these four witnesses? John the Baptist, who had many, many followers. So he's using him as credentials. And then you have the works that Jesus does, which has no explanation except for being from God. Then you have uh, the Father himself who testified, especially at his baptism, and then and also through the prophets. And then, of course, you have the scriptures that testify of him. All right. Verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Okay, there's the inner witness. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He, does, he who does not believe has made him a liar because he's not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So one of the sins that are against the unbeliever, John says, is that he called God a liar. Every unbeliever is calling God a liar because God has said, this is my son in whom is life. And they say, no, he's not. Okay? So, so, so it's not that, um, it's not so much their works are evil or anything like that, at least based on human evaluations. Their works, honestly, some of these people are better than you and me. There's some wonderful, wonderful atheists out there by the world standards. There really is. Very compassionate, very charitable, all those things. But what is their spiritual crime? Because they know about Jesus and they reject him, they're calling God a liar because God has testified, hasn't he? It says the Father himself has testified. Then this word, and Jesus calls himself the word, has testified. His works have testified. The prophets have testified. And they're saying that all this testimony is lies. Okay? So unbelief is a very serious sin. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and the life is in his son. It's pretty black and white, right? He's given us life, the life is in his son. Now, if you like black and white, you're gonna love verse 12. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Listen, some things are black and white. Some things are a little bit more fuzzy. The things of life and death are very black and white. We need to get the black and white stuff right and then we can deal with the fuzzy. So there's no sense in arguing and debating over this and that and the other thing unless you're arguing and debating with people that believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Until then, that needs to be the primary topic of conversation. That needs to be the thrust of our relationships um, with people. Why? If they don't have Jesus, they don't have life. And listen, John says this, I've seen him, I met him, I walk with him, I talk with him. And if you don't believe this testimony, he's not saying you're calling me, John, a liar. He's saying you're calling God a liar because God has testified to these things. Verse 13 becomes kind of the purpose statement of the entire book of 1 John. Okay, the mission statement, the purpose statement, verse 13, he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you, here's why he wrote to you believers out there, 
that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So let me paraphrase. Remember we talked about the ebb and flow of faith? It says when you're on a, on a, on a downward turn in your faith, he says, read my letter, 1 John, because I'm writing so that you know that you have eternal life. I'm giving you testimony, testimony of God, testimony of Jesus. I'm giving you my own personal testimony. I'm telling you that John the Baptist has given testimony. Okay, I'm telling you that we who are there do not doubt these things, okay? That we have been given the same spirit that you've been given, okay? So as we have a faith meter and our faith goes up and down on this meter, I want you to remember this, that you have been given the word of God, you have been given your church, you have been given worship songs, you have been given a prayer life, and all these things are meant to get you into in contact with the Spirit, the inner witness of that Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is alive and dwells in worship. He's alive and dwells in the Word. He's alive and dwells in your prayer life. These are, these are avenues of grace that God has given us to stay close to Him. When we don't pick up our Bible, we're not worshiping in song and singing to Him. When we're not praying, then those avenues, we're not on the avenues of grace. And we get into the world and we start thinking like the world and getting the opinions of the world. And you're going to see what John concludes with, talking about you're, you're not in the spirit of God there, you're in the spirit of wickedness. Because the world is naturally wicked. And we're naturally wicked when we're not in the spirit. It's the only thing that saves us. All right, verse 14. Let me say something else about 12 and 13. Any confusion about the afterlife must overcome the simplicity of verse 12. Remember I said if you like black and white, you'll love verse 12. He who has a son has life. He who does not have a son does not have life. Listen, with that simplicity, any competing theories about the afterlife must overcome this testimony. The testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of Jesus' works, the testimony of the Father, the testimony of scriptures has to overcome this simplicity. We're not giving them uh, laws of physics that they got to study math forever and ever to figure out. We're giving them this. If you have the son, you have life. If you don't, you don't have life. Okay? Now, with that simplicity, let's now talk about the testimony and those who have testified to this. Let's look at their credibility. Okay, with that. Now, verse uh, 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, what do you think is the biggest part to understand there for us naturally sinful creatures, hopefully acting supernaturally? Because your, your, your sinful nature says, what? If I, if, I, if I proclaim Christ, I get whatever I want? All I got to do is ask. Okay, this says according to his will, correct? We ask according to his will. When your will matches his will, when there's unity and harmony with your walk with God, when Psalm 37.4 becomes a reality for you, that you have been delighting yourself in the Lord, just pure delight in the Lord for who he is, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. And then whatever you ask, according to that desire that he's giving you, according to his will, he hears us. That's the confidence he has in us as he hears us. Okay, now. Sometimes people listen to us, but 
we want to say this, do you hear me? Are you hearing what I say right now? Are you hearing me? This says, listen, here's your confidence. He hears you. He's listening and he hears you. It's a relational word that he's relating to your heart. He's relating to who you are. He hears you. And that's the confidence that you have in him. That if you're asking anything according to his will, he hears you. Now, it says uh, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So I want you to notice the parallel here between he hears and we have. Okay? He says, because he hears you, you already have what you're asking for. Because you're asking according to his will, and your will lines up with his will. So you're only wanting the things that he wants you to want. When you want the things he wants you to want, he wants you to have them. Okay, and they're very rarely material things. You're usually going to want to serve and to help and to do all these other things. Okay? And, it, and, and you're getting the want-tos of your life. Okay? You're getting the wants. Outside of that, the wantiness is sinful. Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. So that's fulfilling this relationship. The Lord is my shepherd. And then what's the rest of that verse say? I shall not want. He takes the wantiness away. Okay? He's going to cure that wantiness. It's a miserable life to live as a wanter all the time. Um, when uh, Rockefeller, back when he was one of the richest men in the world, he was asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. Is there any contentment in that life? Because if you give him a little more, guess what his answer is going to be then? Just a little more. And guess, and there's no contentment. So what is our formula for contentment, ladies and gentlemen? There's a formula. It's an addition formula. Ready? It's godliness. So how's your behavior? Godliness plus contentment is what? The thing Rockefeller was looking for. It's great gain. There's your profit. Your godliness and your contentment give you all that profit. Okay? When the um, Jesus tells the parable of the man whose crops were so successful that he had to tear down his old barn and build new barns, and then he filled up all those new barns, and when he filled up all the new barns, he said... I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, okay? He says, I'm set, I'm good. And what did the Lord say to him that night? He says, you fool, you fool, because all that I gave you was not just for you. It was so that you could be helpful and useful. He says, you fool, and how does God teach him a lesson? He says, your soul is required of you tonight, tonight. He says, now what are you going to do with all that you profited with? Okay, all right, so um, so according to his will is the key to understanding here. When our wills are in harmony with his, we have confidence in him, both hearing us and responding to us. The certainty of this is, is seen and that he hears and we have, and it's as good as done. Luke 11, 9 through 13 says this, Jesus Christ doing the speaking, he says, which one of you fathers, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a stone? 
And what's the obvious answer? None of you fathers would do that to your son. He says, then if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father know how to give you? Now, what's the gift that he says he's going to give there? He says, give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him. That Holy Spirit that allows your will to line up with his will so that everything you ask for, you receive. So when you ask for bread, you, you, you don't get a stone or a scorpion. Why? The only reason why a father would give his son a stone or a scorpion is to teach him something the hard way. Okay, but if you've already learned these things about God, he doesn't have to teach you the hard way. Okay, he gets to bless you and your decisions. All right, next. Um, verse 16. Now, it says, if anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that we should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Now, I'm sure you're all saying that's super easy. We all get that. Can we just move on? All right? You're not saying anything at all. All right, so I'll try to explain, but this is not easy to explain at all. So let's, uh, let's try to deal with this. Now, first of all, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and I don't think the New King James Version is the best version to read from for these verses, and here's why. Because this says, uh, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, understand this. Well, well first of all, Sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I don't say to pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, what is this talking about? Well, the sin that doesn't lead to death is basically all sin, okay, except for the sin that leads to death. But let me get to that. But the wages of sin is death, correct? So all sin leads to death. But if you are faithful to confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That was chapter one, right? But now it says, um, I don't think you should pray about the sin that leads to death. There's a sin that leads to death, okay? The other sins do not lead to death because you can confess those and repent and be forgiven. But what about the sin he says, don't pray about uh, that leads to death? Well, This does not say in verse 16 that there is a sin leading to death. This says there is sin that leads to death. In other words, there is a pattern of sin. There is a condition of heart in sin that leads to death. What is the pattern? The pattern is a continuous pattern. What is the condition of heart? It's a willing heart to sin. It's the want to again. This is, a, I know what the Bible says, but I really want to do this ongoing sin. And you actually become identified by your sin, okay? People will say, oh, I know Joe, he's a liar, that guy. He's known by a sin. And the Bible does say, liars will by no means inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a very, very serious thing. So this is saying there is sin that leads to death. And this will be willful, unrepentant sin that leads to death. But this says, this says that, um, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then if we see a brother sinning, 
it says he will ask and he will give him life. So he starts by saying, listen, when you pray to, to God, you'll get what you ask, right? We just covered that last verse. And then what's the first thing he brings up that you should be asking for? You should be asking for your brother who is not sinning the sin that leads to death, but he's sinning the sins that do not lead to death, that you ask for him to be forgiven, and this says he'll be forgiven, okay? Now, this is, uh, again, Luke chapter 11. It says, um, whoever asks receives, who seeks not, uh, who, who seeks finds, who, who knocks, the door will be open to him, okay? How does that start? Whoever asks receives. So this is this continuing uh, teaching on uh, the believers asking. Now, Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 deals with the sin that leads to death. And both of those passages, in fact, we can go there real quick just so uh, we see what we're talking about. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4, says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Okay, this is a rejection of what the word tells us. How do I know that? Because verse seven and eight compare it to the rain that falls on the earth and sometimes the rain produce, produces herbs that are useful and good for us, and sometimes it produces thorns and thistles, okay? So, um, so we're the soil. That's the parable of the sower, right? Our hearts are the soil. And so when the rain of the word falls on us, if it produces thorns and thistles, it says we're worthy of being burned. We're committing the sin leading to death. We're rejecting this word over and over again. Hebrews 10 says something very, very similar. Hebrews 10 says, um, for if we will, verse uh, 26, for if we, if we sin willfully, remember he said this is willful, unrepentant sin, correct? And here it is in uh, Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Because anybody that rejected Moses' law died on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse will the punishment be if you had to die for rejecting Moses' law? Now you're rejecting the Son of God. How much worse will the punishment be? So um, that's the willful, unrepentant sin of 1 John that he's speaking of there. Now, concluding, verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, does that sound true to you? You could say, no, because I'm born of God and I sin. Or you could say, yes, because it's in the word of God and whatever it says, I'm good with. But how do we understand that if in chapter one, he says, if you sin, confess it and you'll be forgiven. And now in verse chapter five, he says, everybody born of God does not sin. Does he expect that when you read chapter one, by the time you get to five, you're perfect? No. So what is he saying? All right, whoever, this is talking about believers, the whoever is the believers, but whoever is born of God, see it's believers, does not sin. Now, does not, the verb does not sin is the present active indicative. I'm only telling you that because it makes me sound smart. I know you don't know what I'm talking about there. 
But the present active indicative verb tense in Greek means, it should be translated this, does not continue sinning. It's an ongoing active verb. It doesn't stop punctilier in one point in time. It's ongoing. So this should be translated, uh, we know that whoever is born of God does not continue in their sin. But he, now this is where the, NA, the NKJV does not do a good job. I think the NASB and the ESB do a good job with this. It says, but he, that should be capital H. It's referring to Jesus Christ here. But he who has been born of God, Jesus Christ, keeps, and my version said himself, but it should just say him. Okay, so my version says this. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. This makes it sound like we're keeping ourselves uh, free from sin. That's not what this is saying. This, what this is saying is this, and other versions have this much better and clearer. Whoever is born of God does not continue in sin. We, I think we get that part. But Jesus Christ, he who has been born of God, keeps him. So why don't I continue in sin? Because Jesus Christ keeps me. My security is in him. Okay, I have eternal security in him. Now, you're the type of people that want proof. So let me give you some. All right, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse First uh, Peter 1, I'm sorry. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept, there's that word, who are kept by the power of God. God does the keeping. We're not keeping ourselves, as the NKJV seems to indicate. It's Jesus Christ who's keeping us. We're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What about Jude? Book of Jude right before Revelation. Verse 24 and 25 says this. Now to him who is able to keep you. So who's doing the keeping? Are we keeping ourselves or is God keeping us? This is God keeping us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. is exactly what John is saying in 1 John 5. If, you have, if the translation's right. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior. Who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. It's exciting. Ask Jude how exciting that is. He's keeping you. He's keeping you from sin and the evil one. All right. Um, how about Isaiah 54? Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. The ones who come to condemn you, you're going to end up condemning because he's keeping you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Okay, so no weapon can formed against you can prosper because he's keeping you. All right. Verse 19, 1 John chapter 5. So we finish this book. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I brought that up a little earlier. 
Listen, the Lord's Prayer, how's the Lord's Prayer finished? Listen, most of your versions say, deliver us from evil. But in Greek, there's the article the there. It's deliver us from the evil. And that doesn't make sense to say deliver us from the evil because what's supposed at the end of that verse is you would say it's the evil one. Okay, so what we're, we're supposed to pray in the Lord's Prayer, the way Jesus taught us to pray was Lord deliver us, it doesn't say from evil, because Christians experience evil, correct? How confusing if you spend your whole life reciting the Lord's Prayer to be delivered from evil and then evil happens to you. We're not promised deliverance from evil. We're ultimately promised deliverance from the evil one. Okay, we're del promised deliverance from the evil one. All right, so this says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world does. They're under their, his sway. You were delivered from that sway because you were transformed by the renewing of your mind and you no longer conform to the patterns of the world. Amen? You no longer conform to the patterns of the world, which is under the sway of the wicked one. Now you stand under the authority and power of Jesus Christ, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? These are amen, hallelujah things. Okay, now, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Listen, he's wrapping up this letter. Here's how it started. That which was from the beginning, that which we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that that life was manifested and, and that is what we proclaim to you. How does he end? This is the true God and this is eternal life. Now, let's put first things first. You've got a home to care for. You've got a job to keep up with. You've got either kids or parents or somebody that's not you that helps to drive you insane and crazy virtually on a daily basis, okay? You've got lots and lots of stuff coming upon you. Every morning when you wake up, you know it's coming. But let's keep first things first. What's first things first? God is true and there is eternal life, okay? And it's in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only and it comes with great testimony about it. This is not a blind faith that we're walking out right here, guys. This, this is the evidence of things not seen. Don't focus on the not seen without focusing on the fact that God left us evidence. God left us evidence. This is a rational faith. Unbelief is irrational. Okay? Now, what's the biggest threat that the evil one will put against you with all of this evidence? Well, John addresses it on his way out. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Don't love anything more than God. John Calvin said, "Your the human mind is an idol factory. You must close that shop. You must stop the idols from coming into your life. You must check your loves, check your affections. Jesus Christ is the umbrella of love and all your other love should be under that umbrella not enveloping the love of Jesus Christ, but coming under the love of Jesus Christ. Because when your primary love is Jesus Christ, then everything else you love is coming from him. Let him be your source of all things. Hate what he hates, love what he loves. Let him give you the desires of your heart. Walk as a Christian in a way that other people know 
that your life is a life that they want. They want what you have. It's very attractive to those who are under the sway of the wicked one because they are exhausted and they are frustrated and they don't think that there's any solutions. You have the solution abiding in you, the eternal answer to everything that's wrong. Be that light. Recognize the enthusiasm of John as he writes this letter. He's very excited about his friend Jesus Christ, isn't he? Okay, he's very excited and we should be too. Amen? Amen. What a great letter. What a wonderful, wonderful letter we have here. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, in Jesus' name we come to you, Lord, and um, we just lift this study up as an act of service to you, Lord God. It's just an act of service. And we pray, Lord, all the imperfections of it, Lord, you would perfect through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those that have tuned into this, Lord, that they would receive a special blessing for their faithfulness to you, Lord, that uh, we may walk delighting in you, not just tonight, but every day of our lives. Lord, may, may this give us the spiritual vigor tomorrow to be a testimony of your love. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are getting a few questions here. Uh, let's start with this first one to ask. Does God only hear you if you are doing his will? Um, okay, so technically hearing people, I wouldn't say the omniscient God would ever say, I never heard something. What I think uh, I said and what I hope I said in this is this is a hearing that's relational. That, you know, when I say I hear you, I'm not saying my ears work. I'm saying there's an understanding and a, and a compassion and an empathy with what you're saying. I'm hearing you. I'm relating to you. I'm feeling you. So the difference between, the difference between um, uh, just being, being, being audible to somebody and being, and, and hitting their sympathies, I think is the difference here. So I think if you're, God hears the unbelieving world because he can, he, he receives the audio waves they send up and, and he, he gets those sounds in his ears. But the, the empathy of walking with us and relating to us and the, and the fact that um, he weeps with us and he uh, is moved by compassion by the things that affect us, that's the hearing that I'm talking about. Uh, that, that's different from the other hearing. We have another question here. It is referring to, uh, at the beginning of tonight's study, uh, you were talking about the debate. Uh, could you please uh, just kind of review and repeat that information on that debate, and would you be able to spell uh, the name of the gentleman that was in the debate? Yeah. Uh, William Lane, L-A-N-E, Craig, C-R-A-I-G. Uh, he's a apologetics professor at Biola University out in California. And uh, even when he was much, much younger, uh, I just so admired his mind. He, he, can just, he can just pick up on the errors of arguments that come against him and dissect them on the spot and show people the error of their uh, attack on Christianity very quickly and easily. If you want to look up one of his debates, I suggest you look up a debate between him and Christopher Hitchens, who... Um, uh, was a very antagonistic atheist, very bad-tempered or bad-mannered, I would say, kind of crude atheist, which to me just makes the whole thing more fun to watch. But um, 
William Lane Craig, uh, again, he, pres he presents the same arguments over and over again. Cosmological argument, teleological argument, the argument for morality, and then he'll say the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And why would he use the same arguments every debate, except for the fact that nobody can overcome them? Okay, so when you talk about those arguments, uh, I've presented them. If you've taken my apologetics course, I've presented each and every one of those arguments. Um, and they just cannot be overcome by the unbelieving world. And, uh, and he finishes with the, with the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, which he knows is going to antagonize the atheists, say, what are you talking about, this invisible inner witness? I mean, how can that serve as testimony if it's just in you? And he says, well, millions of people have it too, and they all agree with me, and they're nodding their heads yes right now. And, and, and our Bible tells us that they can understand God's heart and mind because they have God's heart and mind abiding in them. And they also tells us that you can't. So you're actually kind of proving the Bible to be true as you demonstrate your frustration with that last point. William Lane Craig versus Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens passed away of cancer a couple years ago. And that's why we ought, we've got to be very sober-minded about the fact that he was antagonistic about this stuff because he's living out the consequences of that now and forevermore. And that's a very serious thing. This question reads... You mentioned that it would have been better if a man had not accepted Jesus than to have accepted him and turned away. Isn't that the same thing? No. Um, and I want to be careful with the wording of all that because uh, I believe in eternal security. So I think if you've ever accepted him, you'll always accept him. It's What the passages are saying is that you've participated in Christian things like communion and all of those, you participated, you've tasted the good word of God. Now, if you've, if you tasted a, uh, a piece of broccoli, would you say that you had dinner? No, you didn't consume a meal. You just tasted something, right? So it says you tasted the good word of God. You didn't consume it. You didn't abide in it and all of that, but you tasted it. You're aware of it. You've tried it. Um, you, you, you've, uh, you participate in Christian things. Says then if you walk away, that's way worse than if you've never participated. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, because you're trampling the Son of God underfoot. It's like you brought him in near just to walk all over him. And you treat it as blood as something common. Like like you you drew close to the blood that sanctifies you, and then you you didn't see the holiness and the value of it. You didn't see the preciousness of it. That the Bible says you weren't. You weren't redeemed by things like gold and silver and precious gems. That's the most precious things we have on the earth. It says you weren't redeemed by that, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, something far greater than earthly riches redeemed you. So for people to treat that as something common, you know, coming to the church and like, I don't know, uh, you know, <clears throat> just seeing if that's the social life that they want and walking away, that's a very serious crime against the church and against Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't, tr people say, I, I tried Christianity. Oh, no, it's not something you try. This is not, the, this is the truth. You either abide in truth or you're a part of uh, the spirit of the wicked one. This is the black and whiteness of the gospel. Uh, it's not, you don't try it on like, like a shirt and see if it works for you or not. Um, that's treating it as something common. And the writer of Hebrews says it's a very awful thing to do. The next question basically is expressing still a little bit of confusion around chapter 5, verse 16 that you covered tonight. 
Welcome to the club, whoever wrote the question. To pray for, and is this where Catholics get the idea of mortal and venial sin? I think they have broader. I think they have a broader category of sin that they call mortal sin. I believe I can't tell you that I know that for sure, but uh, it may be this. Uh, I would say this is certainly the strongest verse if you're going to talk about a mortal sin. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt. This is uh, this and Jesus talking about the unforgivable sin. Um, certainly are the strongest verses for the argument for a mortal sin. And, um, and and what was the first part of the question, Mike? At the very end of verse 16, it mentions not praying. So they're asking basically when, when that statement is made, is there a person or type of people that we're not supposed to pray for? Who are they addressing there? Well, I, I think... I think it's this, the, 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 the sobering understanding that this is unforgivable. So to, to pray for forgiveness for something that's unforgivable is not going to make it forgivable. So, um, you know, I think, I think we're taught, I know I was taught, a mistaken notion of everybody has until the point of death to surrender their life to Christ. But that's not what the Bible says. Uh, Pharaoh didn't have his whole life to surrender his life. He was hardened. Um, um, uh, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 talk about people who cannot be, uh, cannot repent anymore. The Bible says Esau got to a point where he could not repent, though he sought it with tears. Uh, he couldn't repent uh, of that. Um, there is a time where it's too late. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, God, listen, the fact that the fact that we have any chance at all after the garden is tremendous grace and mercy. And that, that, that is seen by the angels that are put in front of the entrance of the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve cannot come back in. Now, why is that grace and mercy? Well, God says, because I don't want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever. Now, that sounds like he's mad, but that is grace and mercy of God. Why? because they're separated from God now. And if they eat of the tree in life and live forever, they'll be forever separated from God. So he wants to redeem. So when you take this redemption of God and you treat it as maybe a social advantage you're looking for, a different lifestyle change for you, you're just trying on to see if it works, you do not understand who you're dealing with, you do not understand what you're dealing with, and you underestimate the preciousness of the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross uh, for the sins of the people. So, uh, I listen, I believe with all my heart that I greatly underestimate all of these things that I just mentioned. I don't think I'm close to fully understanding or nowhere near close fully understanding how precious this is. I, I take that knowledge that I fall short of understanding and I pray and I read and I study and I try and I ask God to show me what he wants to show me and to uh, erase what, whatever's wrong in my mind. I mean, I'm always saying to him, I want nothing but what you want me to have. I don't want anything to come from me for any false motives. I just want to know what he wants me to know. And that's what I want to walk in. So with that, I still fear that I don't have the proper reverence for God. So what about those who play games with this stuff? How awful is that? Um, 
So um, I, I'm not sure about the Catholic understanding of this. Um, I, no matter if it's Catholic or Protestant understanding, the bottom line is, I, I think John is saying, um, there are people in spiritual conditions that it's just too late. And he's saying, I'm not saying pray, praying about them to be forgiven. Uh, and I don't know that you and I would know who one is if we came across one. Uh, I know that when I deal with teenagers, the teenager that comes to me an atheist, I have much more hope for than the teenager that comes to me apathetic. I, the apathetic one is the one I find to be the furthest from God. Because at least the atheist might have some mental energy going towards the thoughts of is he there or not, and I just don't think so. But the one that's apathetic, I worry about these verses from because they're not taking anything seriously enough to even be in the game, in the conversation. At least the atheist is in the conversation and they're talking. So um, I do think that we got to get over this. Uh, I can sin, and as long as five minutes before I die, I confess. No. Uh, when you pre-plan it that way, it takes away the authenticity of it all. It's got to be authentic. If you believe with all your heart, the Bible says. If your heart is in it, then uh, you wouldn't treat the things of Christianity the way these verses are, are talking about. We have a question here that reads, are the Hebrews verses directed at believers or non-believers? Because how can a true believer fall away based off the verse that if they depart from us, they were never of us? Yeah, I don't think a true believer can fall away. I mean, there are Christians that believe you can, but I don't believe you can. I don't think this is talking about true believers. I think it's talking about the fact that there can come a time that it's too late. I think these verses are more directed at if you've played the game and you walk away, understand that what you're rejecting is so holy and so um, awesome. I mean, that word is watered down as well, but it's just so magnificent that um, it could be. Uh, I mean, if you read the story of Exodus, it definitely starts with Pharaoh. God tells Moses, I know what Pharaoh's going to do. He's going to harden his heart. He didn't say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden his heart. He says, I know what Pharaoh's going to do. He's going to harden his heart. And then you see through the first half of the plagues or so, Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then it becomes God hardening his heart. So it became too late. It became too late for him. Okay. Um, and... Uh, and, and Paul uses it as an example, that God will harden whom he hardens. But when we get that, God will harden whom he hardens, it doesn't seem to be this frivolous decision of him just going down the line saying, you're good, you're good, you're hardened, you're good, you're hardened, you're good, you're good, you're hardened. It seems to he, he would say, I know who will harden their hearts. I know who will do that, okay, ultimately. Now, for some reason, the Reformed part of our faith does not like it to be said that God's foreknowledge plays a role in this. And I don't understand that because Romans 8 says, those he, pre those he foreknew, he also predestined. So it's saying there's this foreknowledge of God going on. Reformed Protestants don't, don't buy that. They don't like to hear that for some reason. But what does the Exodus passage say? God says to Moses, I'm gonna send you to Pharaoh and I know that he'll harden his heart. That's his foreknowledge. He has the knowledge beforehand that that's going to happen. So um, I think 
these passages would speak of that. The Hebrews passage would say, listen, God knows the outcomes, but those who play the game and people go, oh, look at this person who's a Christian and look what they're doing. And then they see them leave. Now, why is that worse than the person that never came to faith? Because it confuses the sheep, doesn't it? How come that person left? I thought they were saved. I thought this, I thought that. How could they? The Hillsong singer, he's confused thousands, if not millions of Christians. He walked away. He's leading worship. His worship music is chart-topping stuff and every church in the country is singing his songs. And he says, I don't believe anymore. Now, that guy was as close as he got. What it, it's not just like some guy in Kentucky we never heard of walking away. Why? Because there's no repercussions there. This guy has repercussions throughout the world of it. Maybe that's more serious. Maybe that's more serious than, than, than otherwise. So, you know, those who draw near and walk away, I think are in worse shape. I think that's what this is trying to tell us. I really do. That's how I understand it. So this next question is kind of playing off of uh, your answer to, I believe it's uh, two questions ago now. And it reads, why does the church say if you have strayed from God, all you have to do is repent and you can come back to the Lord? Does that fall under the category of crucifying the Son of God and or bringing him, excuse me, bringing him to an open shame? Does that fall under the sin of punishable by death? Um, to the ones who these passages are directed to, it does. To the prodigal sons out there, it doesn't. So some are prodigal sons that the father receives back. Some are the objects of Hebrews 6 and 10. And you and I can't look anybody in the eye and know which is which. That's the stuff of God. Um, so um, we're taught both, aren't we? We're taught that there's some that it's impossible to lead them to repentance. And we're told that others, they're prodigals and uh, they come back. So uh, the prodigal heart can be redeemed. The one that commits a sin leading to death cannot be redeemed. And uh, I wouldn't, I would never look at somebody and say, I know who's who in that. Um, I treat them all as potential prodigals and try to bring them back. So, um, yeah, I, I just think we're tapping into the stuff that only God would know there. He reveals this much to us, but the, que the way that the, the question's asked, that's, I, don't th I don't think that's been revealed in his word of, of uh, how do we know if somebody's prodigal and he's going to be received back or not. Remember, the prodigal came back on his own, right? So I guess one of the differences is if the person never comes back, they're probably a Hebrew 6 or 10 person. If they come back, they're a prodigal. But how do we know who's coming back or not? So I don't know. Keep the door open. See if they walk through. Keep the light on, right? Keep the key under the mat. And other country song verses like that. <laughs> now, we have a great question here that reads, why do so many Christians feel like they can never measure up to what God expects of them? Okay, let me start by saying this to everybody else that asked the question. No matter what Mike says, I doubt those were great questions as well. Okay? Now, <laughs> for the one that Mike thinks is so great, Okay. Um, why do so many Christians feel like they can't measure up to what God expects? Okay. All right. Well, I don't know what they think God expects, but here's what I think God expects. Um, that you love him and you love others. Okay. 
So I, I don't think that um, we should think that God is expecting much more than that. I think all the fruit that comes from loving him and loving others is the life that God has for us. And that fruit is different for everybody, but it's fruit for everybody. Um, humility is a big part. And I think if you love God and love others, humility is going to be a natural thing that we walk in. Um, I think if they're talking about things like evangelism and, and um, um, things like that, uh, that could be a heavy burden. Listen, I don't think I ever drive through Dunkin' Donuts or anywhere without going. I think I'm supposed to say something here. And I most often don't, except for thank you, have a blessed day. Um, and, and so I understand Philippians 2, 12 and 13 to say this, that when God is really speaking to me to do something, he's going to create in me the will to do it. And from that will, I'm going to not want to not do it. So if I end up not doing it, be, listen, I only say this because I, I pray a lot and I read the word a lot and I'm asking God a lot to fix me and correct me and rebuke me and all these things that will keep me from error. So if I drive away from Dunkin' Donuts without saying God loves you or something like that, I'm trusting that I'm not supposed to say to every single person that I come across my whole entire life, but God will have certain divine appointments that I actually do respond to and I say it to the right person at the right time and so forth. And if I'm wrong in saying that, I'm praying for the rebuke tonight, preferably after you guys turn off your cameras, okay? But I, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to, guys, when I teach you guys, you got to understand there's fear and trembling in me teaching this stuff. This is, this is serious stuff that comes with um, a lot of responsibility to be faithful to it. So the best I can do as far as the expectations of God is come to it humbly with my best effort that I can put into it humbly and I ask God to do whatever he wants with it, okay? I come with no agenda but to please him, that's it. So to me, those aren't expectations that overwhelm or anything and I hope that simplifies uh, looking at these expectations that Christians are called to live up to. Remember, Jesus Christ said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So I would, I would pray that you would, you would ask to experience that that light burden, that easy yoke that he's called us to walk in. We are not under the law. We've been set free from the law. So um, um, anything that feels like burden, I would encourage you to pray that away through, through Christ. Pray the burdens away. He says, place your cares on me because I care for you. Okay. He should bear our burdens for us. And that sounds like something you never want to do to somebody. But when your shoulders are divine, you can, you can handle that. So uh, he encourages us to do that. I hope that was freeing for whoever wrote that question because we're called to live in, in that freedom. So I really hope so. This is the last question of the evening. Um, when it says, it says here, a Catholic that believes in last rites, does that make them worthy of heaven with Jesus? Um, whenever a question is asked, about some sort of action on our behalf or some sort of work or some sort of performance. And that question finishes with, does that make us worthy? I'm always gonna to have to say no. There's nothing that makes you worthy. 
There's not a single thing under the sun you can say you can do to make you worthy. Your worthiness is found in the worthiness of Christ and his affections towards you is where your worthiness is. Um, I will say this, just so you can have a little controversy to uh, kick around as you go to bed tonight. Um, I actually think the Catholics might be right about last rites, though, as far as praying those last rites over people. Because when I read the James passage, I understand it the way the Catholics do rather than the way the Protestants do. That when it says if you're, um, if you're sick, you should call for the elders of the church who will come and anoint you with oil. Let me, let me not say this wrong here. So let me go to James real quick. And again, this is just my understanding. I'm not teaching you this. I'm saying I'm just being transparent here. And I'm open for somebody to write in and say, you idiot, why'd you think this? Don't you understand this? And if I see it the way you see it, I'll thank you very, very much for that. Except for the idiot part. All right. Do you know, after all these years, I can't ever remember if James is before or after Hebrews. I always, it never, ever sticks with me. I don't know why. All right. James. All right, where is that? Is that in the last chapter? It is in the last chapter, isn't it? Yes. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any one cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Even if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now, the Catholics believe that this is talking about the sickness that leads to death. Okay, they're on their deathbed sick. And so it says, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And it says that the prayer of faith will save the sick. And then why do they think this is the last rites verse? Because it says, and the Lord will raise him up. So it sounds like it's saying he'll participate in the resurrection if you do this. Okay? So if somebody's sick and dying and they call for the elders of the church, that's an act of faith, if they do it sincerely. If they're doing it saying, just in case I'll do it, just in case it's right, then I'll do it, then that's not sincere. But if out of faith they go, call for the elders of the church, I'm sick, I'm dying, call for the elders, I want to be prayed over, then this seems to say that God will uh, re respond to that anointing and heal them and raise them up. Okay, so it's either raising them up by the sickbed to be better, but usually the word raised up is a resurrection word. So that's, I think that's a Catholic understanding of it. And just when I hear it, I just kind of go, yeah, that's just, if nobody ever taught me it, if I just read it, I would, that's how I would report it. I would say, you're, you want to be raised from the dead? You know, call for the elders if, if you're sick. Why? Because the first verse says this, if anyone's suffering, he doesn't say, if you're suffering, call for the elders and do this. He just said, pray. You're suffering, pray. But then he separates suffering from the one who's sick. So it's something different. So it might be a sickness that leads to death. Now I say all that, and I'll finish with this. Maybe, maybe that's it. I don't know for sure. Um, I don't think Protestants bad, you know, have a license on being right about everything they ever say, and I don't think Catholics do either. You know, I don't think any one person is right on anything. When I teach the book of Revelation, believe me when I tell you, I'm going to be saying maybe a lot. So if you're looking for... If you're looking for, is COVID the mark of the beast? I'm not even going to say maybe. I'm going to probably say no to that. But 
Um, that's not what this, that study is going to be about. It's, it's, it's not going to be a claim to know everything about end times. Because if my Lord says even he doesn't know everything about end times, then how dare I even come close to saying something like that. So we're just going to walk verse by verse through Revelation with humility, read it together, talk about it, and if you want to show up the next week, you're more than welcome. No, just um, I hope you enjoyed it as, as much as I did. And of course, I want to thank Mike and John and Diana because uh, uh, this isn't the um, most convenient thing in the world, but they sacrificed to help it happen. And, uh, and guys, um, I just respect the heck out of you for showing up every Wednesday. That's wonderful. So God bless you guys for that. And um, if you're interested, next week will be second and third John together. And then uh, we'll, we'll do that next week. All right. So good night, everybody. God bless you.